Good morning, everybody. Welcome back, guys. It's good to see you. Okay, so I'll just uh, wait for the uh, PowerPoint to come up. Um, and we're going to be finishing off our series uh, today. And part of what I want to do, if you would like, is to finish off um, with some questions or comments that you'd like to make um, for what we've been looking at over the last uh, eight weeks. And, um, yeah, anything that sort of has been whirling away in your minds that you'd like to share or else a nagging question that you've been wanting to ask. Um, so we'll leave some space uh, for that uh, at the end as well. So we've been looking at this whole idea of the um, biblical story, the biblical meta-narrative, as we say every week, um, and finding what is our place within that story. We've been talking about like the story and also the idea of a Christian worldview. And part of a Christian worldview is to ask significant questions like, um, why is the world the way that it is? Um, is there something wrong with it? Is there a problem? If there is, what is the solution? What does that look like? Um, how do we know? What's the meaning of this life and the history that goes uh, with it for the last uh, you know, civilization for the last how many thousands of years? What, what does it mean? What, is there any point to it? There's a whole lot of questions that a Christian worldview would be interested in to ask and scripture is the fundamental resource that we have to actually understand that. But when we ask the question about where we are in this big story, as we've seen before, we, are, we live in God's creation, is a creation that is good or very good, as it says in Genesis, but which also has the problem of human sin within it. And God has been work, working through history, and through the story of Israel, to actually bring, set the creation, and particularly human beings, set them to rights, as they say, to rectify them, to rescue them, to redeem them. And we find ourselves at the part of a story now which, um, as, let's bring it up. As we said before, creation, fall, story of Israel, coming of the Messiah, the new creation ahead of us, and then finally us, somewhere in the middle between there. So here we are living in a creation that has been spoiled, we live in the light of the Messiah who has come at the climax of the story of Israel um, to redeem us and to rectify our lives. And we'll talk about that rectification in terms of Christian ethics uh, a little bit uh, later. And uh, finally, where is it all going? What does God intend to do? How is he going to bring it to a close? And we looked a couple of weeks ago at the idea of the consummation. The, um, where God completes his work of salvation, judgment and everything and lives among us as the book of Revelation tells us the amazing story that God will come and live among human beings which has always been his purpose from the beginning and in a community which reflects what um, the Hebrew calls shalom a sense of peace, harmony that has justice and things are well, they are good it's a grand vision to look forward to the idea that we could actually live within the presence of God in a new manifest uh, way. And it's not something which uh, we are capable of in the same way in the present. So we live now in anticipation of that which is to come. 
this has been going now for about 2,000 years, though, I might add. Um, Israel, you go back BC, you're really not talking, you're talking probably less than um, 2,000 years BC. But now with this climax of the story of Israel, the coming of the Messiah, the sending of the Holy Spirit into the world, gathering in of people like us, the Gentiles, people who aren't Jews, who aren't part of Israel, brought into this one people of God, grafted into Israel, and now able to live in obedience to what God commands. Not that you can always tell that. But as we've looked at over the last couple of weeks, the whole purpose of where this was all going, this idea of that there would be a new covenant, a new exodus uh, at the end of the story of Israel, looking at the, uh, the problem of exile, there's a new covenant to come, which is about the fact that we can live in God's presence and do the things that he's always wanted us to do. As I said last week, we're not just called to be um, basically just to receive the benefits, but to participate in the mission, the calling, the life of the age to come. So how much longer this will go on? We don't know. Um, Martin Luther made a comment, one I believe it was Martin Luther. You can correct me on this, guys, because you probably have heard this one before. But um, when uh, Martin Luther was allegedly asked, um, what would you do if you knew that the world was going to end tomorrow? And apparently he said, I would plant a tree. The onflux of a catastrophic end to the age or something is not what we focus on. We focus on faithfulness to God in the present time, living on and on and on until the coming of the Lord. So what does it mean, though, to live between the times? It means to live in the tension between the ages, and for us it means to live as a sign or agent, even a foretaste of the age to come. As I said last week, the goal of all this is a community, as I just described. Just as a refresher for those who weren't here last week, this idea of the present age and the age to come was the idea of Jewish apocalyptic. There's a present age, sometimes the present evil age, Paul calls it in Galatians chapter 1, the present evil age. There'll be a decisive moment in which God will intervene, there'll be um, the coming of the Messiah, the outpouring of the Spirit, resurrection of the dead, and the whole world moves on to this um, new age. But the New Testament understanding, surprise of course, is that the resurrection in the middle of history happened to Jesus and Jesus alone. A lot of people got brought back from life to die again. Jesus is the only one that was ever raised to immortality, to eternal life. So in the middle of the present age, Jesus has been raised from the dead. And so we're still looking forward to the idea of the resurrection of the dead still to come. And yet it's already happened to one person, Jesus. Not only that, in his um, uh, resurrection and ascension, his sitting at the right hand of God, he's poured out the promised Holy Spirit to us as well. So again, rather than something which is a decisive break between the ages, the Spirit of God has come is here amongst us um, as a temple of the Holy Spirit, is what we call the church. God's presence is here amongst us, not just to be enjoyed, but rather to compel us, non coercively, but to compel us to live in the way of Jesus Christ and to embark on a mission into the world as well. 
So not just to enjoy, but to impel us into mission. And so we wait now for the next part where the age, uh, present age ends, which will be the return of Christ, the general resurrection of the dead, and then the judgment of all. So that's how the New Testament broke up what was understood um, prior to the coming of Christ. A, a big surprise, basically. That's just another picture of that from last week. Okay. And again, just quickly for last week, for those who didn't hear, I'm not going to uh, labour it. Thinking about the story again, the God of Israel, the creator of the world, has acted astonishingly to rescue a lost and broken world through the death and resurrection of Jesus. The full scope of that rescue is not yet apparent. God has created a community of witness to this good news, the church. So awaiting the grand conclusion of the story, the end of the present age, church empowered by the Holy Spirit is called to reenact the loving obedience of Jesus Christ and thus to serve as a sign of God's redemptive purpose in the world and then I said who was reading the newsletter Val, Jeff, Pachanza encourage those who, who are not reading it every week we say these things in fact it reflects this very uh, quote that I just said not intentionally but um, that's what we're about follow Jesus Christ live the life of Christ faithfully before God the same way that Jesus did. Share the good news that Jesus is risen. He is the King. He is the Lord over all the powers. And to care for God's world. Our mission in this world is to care for people, but also to care for the whole of creation as well, to reflect God's loving rule over everything. Okay. So this is the calling of the, uh, of the Christian community. Now, one of the things, I'm just going to rattle off uh, a number of different things to sort of wrap up. One of the things that um, I think is helpful in thinking about this big story is looking at the stories that we read and the Bible. Uh, like the, This is The Simpsons again, I'm sorry. But um, the, uh, the thing like, what a preachy book, everyone's a sinner. Oh, except for that guy. Is that, it's full of terrible people, is it not? bar one um, it's also full of pretty good people too but all of them um, sinners but as you read different parts of scripture you're not supposed to look at all of it as though it's normative as though it's actually celebrating people that's kind of obvious but one thing we need to think about as we go through the Bible whenever we read something is to think about where are we in the story how does that relate to what's gone before if there's ever any question of attention or even maybe even what feels like some sort of contradiction that you're puzzled by, the rule of thumb for Christian readers of Scripture is Jesus trumps everything else. Okay, And you might say Paul, um, as the person who is um, proclaiming the kingdom as well, trumps what's gone before, except for Jesus. But they have different uh, audiences. So it's important for us to actually know when we're reading the Bible where something actually is, okay? So as we've seen previously, we can think about, and that's just a bit of a reminder there to think about those different relations that we have in life. As we said, in terms of uh, creation, that we are set in a framework of relationships to God, our fellow human beings and the non-human creation. And so that was an illustration we gave right at the start. 
And then as we moved on, we saw that the idea of actually, if that was the ideal or that was the purpose or the intent of God, instead, human relationships actually look more like this, that we exploit the world, that we uh, uh, curve back in on ourselves as a classic way of describing uh, sin in, in the Middle Ages. We turn back on ourselves. So selfishness is one aspect where we actually um, don't work well with other human beings. There's sort of a fallenness to that. And there's, as Romans 1 says, a kind of unthankfulness characterises our life before God. That again, we turn back um, towards ourselves or we turn towards other things that we think are worthy of our attention, worship or devotion. And then this is where we sort of got to the, I guess, the next expression of, of these relationships in Israel. And so this is how we also think about when we read particular things in the law or the Torah, some of which um, might disturb us, is that this is God beginning to set about rectifying an ancient Near Eastern group of people from a very brutal world, you might say, um, back towards his original creational intents and, of course, his future intents as well. That actually he helps them to actually redirect themselves towards proper worship of God. He redirects them towards proper community or um, what I've said there is friendship. He's got to find a word. And, um, and also a proper expression of loving and caring and wise dominion of the world, the paradigm of the land, promised land. And so there's a lot that happens in there that you would say, well, this is redirecting or pushing them towards what God intends, but you wouldn't say that is God's final word. You wouldn't say this is God's last word on any sort of ethical matter, but it does feed into the direction of where God is pushing people. That's why I think the idea of vocation is very important too, because what it means is that it's not that God sets up an ideal and everyone has to pursue an ideal, or he gives a micromanaging command to everyone, but rather he sets a vision before us and he also sets steps before people that they can begin to be more obedient to what he intends. So not everything that happens in Israel is good, even in terms of the Torah, but it is pointing towards what God intends. Interestingly, when you get to the Sermon on the Mount with Jesus, the word there is actually the idea of telos, fulfilling the law. You're actually going to its proper goal or its proper end, where it's heading. But the Bible deals with people in their real world, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of their sin, and pushes them towards what God intends. Which means, when you come to Jesus, and there's a cross there just for safety's sake, um, <laughs> we're developing each part as we go along. So before, if the, if the um, life in terms of the Torah is, is actually showing revelation of God and, and, um, and directing towards God's intent for life, when it comes to Jesus the Messiah and his teaching and example, what we actually see is that Christian ethics here is follows his example, he's revealing God's intentions, he shows us what it means to be the true image of God. So he's showing us what the likeness of God for a human being is. Plays both parts. But he's also awaiting the promise of the Spirit. So sometimes when we look at um, the Old Testament, there have been ways that um, uh, in theology where, uh, or biblical reading, there's a notion that sometimes people have thought, well, Sermon on Man is oh, so difficult. 
it must be a kind of standard, ideal standard that's up there. And we look at it and go, oh my goodness, I can't do that. So I'm a sinner, so I throw myself before God's mercy. Always good to realise you're a sinner and throw yourself before God's mercy. However, Jesus, and you read the Sermon on the Mount, fully intends people to do what he said. But there's a kind of, I suppose, sense that this is not going to um, go all the way. It's not going to happen uh, all the way. Jesus says, come and take up your cross later on. Uh, there weren't 13 crosses. There was just one cross with the Messiah and 12 disciples scattered and one betrayer. But you wouldn't stop there and reading the New Testament again. You, you realise that this is a story. This has moved on. This is still important and valid. So instead, where we are, thinking about reading the epistles and reading the, looking backwards and reading the Gospels, then we also realise that life and or ethics after the resurrection is following still the example of Jesus. So think about Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Still following the example of Jesus. It's still the revelation of God. He's still the true image of God. But the issue now is that he provides the power of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. So actually what happens then is that oh, if you thought it was a problem before reading, say, the Sermon on the Mount... Um, all excuses have been taken away because now we have God's personal empowering presence in our lives. Now, I'm not talking about perfection or anything like that. What I am saying is that we have a calling and we have a gifting of the Holy Spirit in order to actually, again, help us live this out. So that's a kind of a re reading the Bible, thinking about how to live and the importance of actually thinking about the story. you're going to look at the issue of um, say uh, war and violence you're not going to say well the Christian perspective is anywhere in the Bible and so I'm going straight to Samuel and um, you know a massacre there so Christian perspective on war is that it's okay because God said so to uh, kill a particular group of people not say anything about that all I'm saying is you don't just jump around the Bible willy-nilly you ask yourself where is this in the story? What does this now look like in the light of the coming of the Messiah? And is there anything different? And you all know, because you've all read the New Testament, yeah, it, there's a lot that's uh, quite different, particularly in relation to that question, even if Christians disagree on particular points of that. Okay. Last week as well, again, I'm not going to say too much about this, except to say... When we think about what it means to be a Christian community, called to be a sign and an agent and a foretaste of what is to come. Uh, Dennis Hollinger here says, the present era remains fallen. It's part of our Christian worldview. The world is not just great as it is, but again, neither is it like completely rotten because the fallen world is based in God's good creation. So only the return of Christ, so that's the coming, the new creation to come, can and will resolve the problems of the world as a whole. Nonetheless, it is our future hope which guides our present particular action. Okay, So we don't just live in terms of, well, I live in the real world, and to be realistic, I just basically live like everybody else, except, you know, except for the sexual stuff. Of course, that's out of bounds. I don't lie. I don't steal pens from work. Well, not many. Um, but apart from that, I'm just a, a realist. 
part of being a Christian is actually to say the big surprise is that there is a new reality which is to come and has already come into the present. So this is part of the now and the not, not yet. This is part of the tension. We are the ones to, to actually show the world it's our responsibility given to us to actually act as a sign, as a witness to what is to come. If we don't demonstrate it, not just talk about it, but don't demonstrate it, um, our preaching, our talking, our sharing, our conversation lacks credibility. So we're not called upon to purge, reform, manage the whole world, but we are called to find ways of acting faithful signs of God's promised future. There are ways that we can be peacemakers. There are ways that we can embody restorative justice. There are ways that we can not just fall into a kind of political party that we um, might sympathise with. Christians aren't just conservatives. They are not just progressives. They are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ who, when we look at actually what he calls us to, cuts across a lot of different labels that people have. If you have a view that fits nicely, like your total view, that fits nicely with a particular uh, political party, my sense is you're probably off. You're probably basically just looking at um, things that you sympathise with and maybe put a few Bible verses on the things that you like. We're called to actually be renewing our minds, which means they need to be renewed, do they not? It means our opinions that we already have need to undergo quite a bit of work, okay? That's for all of us, okay? But we know that because we already believe that we are being raised in ways that actually cut across God's intentions and purposes. We call it sin. So we already believe that about ourselves, don't we? That we actually might have things a little bit wrong and that God needs to keep working at us in this stuff. Okay, so we're acting as faithful signs of what's to come. I said I wasn't going to talk about it, but here I am. My apologies. Consummation is not a theology of escape, abdication of responsibility within this world, but it is a reminder to live now in the light of the coming kingdom. Coming kingdom in justice, peace, righteousness, truthfulness and purity will be made complete. It begins amongst us now, amongst the Christian uh, movement. Because it is the place where God's spirit, the spirit of the age to come, some might say, is here amongst us. Um, the New Testament doesn't think about the Holy Spirit actually, you know, we can think about God's providence, that God, the world's not sort of completely out of control and um, God's not active in the world, it's not like that. But the Holy Spirit doesn't get identified with God's providence. Because a lot of people sometimes say things like, well, I know a lot of good people out there in the world, and some of them are better than Christians. Yeah, true. Um, and so that's evidence that the Holy Spirit is out there and doing... Da -da -da. Well, you know, that's an idiosyncratic theology now because the way the New Testament talks about it is that God has given his presence to the people of the Messiah in a new way that hasn't been available before uh, in order to live this new life. And people are at different levels of that in terms of their moral evaluation of them you might say yeah i met someone out there who is better than this person who's here in the church yeah absolutely that doesn't mean that you change your whole theology of the holy spirit to imagine that somehow god is just sort of out there doing stuff and the church yeah doesn't really matter and you can challenge me on that in the question time so okay 
The next thing I want to talk about, there's only three things we're going to talk about, is this idea uh, back in about the 1960s, I think it was, during all the revolutions that were happening then. And the follow-up for that, a lot of new and exciting ideas at university and so forth. You didn't have to wear a tie anymore and all sorts of great stuff. But one of the things that was often lamented was the idea of, is there a loss of something called the Christian mind? So if you went to university, you heard a lot of, you know, amazing far-out ideas and norms were challenged and um, a lot of excitement and all of that, as there always is, the feeling of revolution and so forth. And then following that, there was a sense in which you often, again, had people who were like very conservative culturally, who might be Christians, or there might be people who sort of, yeah, I'm up in all of this, Jesus people, revolutionary kind of thing but actually largely based on the ideas that are around at the time, not necessarily based well on a reading of scripture, understanding the narrative, understanding what God's purposes actually were. And Harry Williams basically said, I'm not sure that we can actually find present as a, um, I wouldn't like to say option, but present as a, as a voice um, within the larger culture of this idea of a Christian mind, where Christian convictions and thoughts were actually um, shared and um, maybe listened to, maybe not, we can't control that, but there wasn't a distinctive Christian mind, including in the church. There wasn't a sense in which Christian convictions uh, really shaped the way that people thought. To a large degree, happens to all of us, in the sense that they're captured by some part of the culture and basically articulate and think in the same as everybody else. So, part of the question is, how do we go about recovering the Christian mind? Now, a lot of work's been done for Christians over the last um, 50 years to try to um, recover that, uh, particularly in North America. And uh, this is my weekly North America uh, slag off. Um, if we look at North America now, and particularly our evangelical brothers and sisters, not all of them, but a good deal of them, you would have to say as well, where is the Christian mind? Where is the sense, actually, of what Christian ethics looks like? How committed are we actually to truthfulness and um, justice and peaceableness and so forth, rather than just getting our way uh, through a political process? So one of the ways of recovering this is what uh, James Sire has called, remember James Sire from our first couple of weeks, that um, worldviews, the idea of the um, discipleship of the mind. Now this is a slight um, uh, twist on, you know, quirky twist or spin on scripture. Um, but uh, he and others often looks at the idea of like, let's love the Lord our God with our heart. Well, we all do that, our inner being, the centre of who we are. Love God with all our heart our soul and mind and strength yep absolutely love my god with all my heart all my soul and all my strength oh mind as well well what would that mean now again this is a bit of a twist on what uh, the original verse means but i think it's um, still important for us today is to think about what does discipleship that includes our minds as well what does it actually mean to really subject ourselves to um the reading of scripture, reading it well, reading it in terms of its story rather than our own agendas, 
read it in terms of the story, thinking through what the convictions that have come up um, through that, and also to think in terms of what that means for Christian community. When we read the Bible, quick aside, it's not just about reading the scriptures on our own. We also read them with the confidence that God, the Holy Spirit, will help us um, understand them as well. But that doesn't explain all our disagreements, does it? And then the third thing, community. And those three things belong together. Scripture, the Spirit, and community. We need to learn to read Scripture together. We lead it with a sense of openness that God will help us through his Spirit to understand it as we read it together. Um, and we don't sort of just slip off into either uh, one of them. It's not just about getting together as a group of people. It's not about seeking special experiences and revelations. It's not just about academic reading of scripture and that as well. It's a balance of actually reading scripture well in the community guided by the spirit. Okay, so the next part uh, of this as well, what we've been looking at, why is it important to think about um, creation and this disruption and then this rectification and redemption is that we have what we would say is a holistic view of life, a holistic view that comes out of creation and a holistic view that comes out of redemption. Now, back in the 90s, and probably the 80s, after becoming a Christian and the new age was all about, and Christians were going, oh, I don't like that word holistic. I heard that in a new age, you know, bookshop or lecture or something or other. Retreat. The Christian mind shrinks back again. You use that word. We can't use that word anymore. It's been polluted. Um, going back well before the new, the new age, thinking about um, Dutch Reformed theology, very much into this idea that all of life is redeemed. It's an expansive vision of creation and its redemption. God doesn't make a world and then redeem a little part of it in terms of saying this segment of life is important to me. I'm redeeming your spiritual life, your worship life, um, your devotional life, and leaving the rest largely untouched, except for a few um, rules and values. No, instead, uh, Abraham Kuyper, who was a Dutch Prime Minister back in the early 20th century, uh, there's not one square inch of creation to which Christ does not say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. I'm told the world, make disciples, teach them everything I've commanded you. Okay. We're nearly there. So to live between the times, as I said, means to live in the tension between the ages. Living as a sign agent of foretaste. Central to this, as well, though, is our understanding of Christian community. Now, we've already had a, uh, five weeks talking about different practices of Christian community, but there's a couple of different things I wanted to mention here, um, and one vital one so that we don't sort of get caught up in the idea of how wonderful it would be if we could go back to a Christian society or Christian civilization. Because under that word Christian, there's a lot of other things hidden underneath that when you pull the mat up and look underneath. Ooh. Um, so, First thing, Jesus talks about uh, this, this community gathered around him as the Messiah in the Sermon on the Mount, describing life in the kingdom of God, not as an ideal, but even in the midst of Roman occupation. This is stuff 
and very specific examples he gives, you know, turning the other cheek and carrying somebody's pack, Roman soldier. Um, all of these things are actually very specific examples that you can actually do, but you might not want to. Um, this is describing life in the kingdom, even in, or you say, under the conditions of the present evil age. He also describes this community as a city on a hill, which might be a reflection possibly of um, uh, Capernaum, which was nearby. Uh, it's a Roman city. It's lit up at night. Could be that. Could be a reference to Jerusalem. Lights of the nations, Jerusalem. City of peace, Shalom. And then Paul as well, his greetings to the ecclesia, which we talked about. We talked mainly about the Jewish roots of that, but it also means the gathering of the citizens of the polis, the city. So God's new city, the new Jerusalem, that which is to come, we are gathering in anticipation of that. And this community is defined by its submission, celebration and obedience to the Lordship of Jesus. It's characterised by good works. And it is defined by faithfulness above effectiveness. And this is, I guess, the point that I want to make is that when we think about Christian ethics and we think about what a Christian life and vocation looks like, it first of all centres in the place where people who acknowledge the Lordship of Christ gather and we are sent out into the world. But the centre is that Christian community, that gathering. It's not a, we're not here as a worship service. We're here as the people of God gathered to often supposedly deliberate on things that matter in our world and in our lives. Unfortunately, we don't often think about ourselves as a political entity in terms of the politics of the kingdom, in terms of being a gathering of the community of the kingdom. We just tend to think about politics and life as something which happens out there, at which point our politics gets attached to uh, other political parties and ideologies. When it comes to thinking about how we should live as Christians together, we will often think, well, that's not realistic because people out in the world wouldn't, you know, aren't going to do that, rather than saying, as a Christian community, we're already committed to following the way of Jesus. Even if it's not effective out there, it is faithful to what God has called us to and we're a sign and an agent and a foretaste of what is to come. So there is, a, there is a kind of both immersion in the world and a disconnect in the sense that we are like an alternative parallel community that lives right in the midst of the world, has relationships with others, but is centred on the Lordship of Christ. And if the world does not follow the way of Christ, that doesn't or shouldn't change the way that we think about following the way of Christ. We sometimes worry about our size, not just the size of our church, but the, you know, the shrinking, well, I know, there's a, you know we're a minority presence again, people aren't going to church, etc. It's not necessarily something to be concerned about, that larger shrinking, except insofar as we might be responsible for turning people off. But just coming along to churches and not committing ourselves to the way of Jesus, not being disciples, that's virtually meaningless. Um, Christian Europe 
supposedly, is, you know, you read a bit of church history and you go, oh my goodness, this is like, this is terrible. Um, with spots of amazing things of this work of the Spirit of God happening, but overall, it's a pretty messy picture. And it's a problem where we just imagine that civilization itself is Christian. We live in a tension. We live in a, I guess, a time between the times where sometimes people may be attracted. As I said last week, sometimes they may be just ambivalent and sometimes they may be hostile. We need to be clear in our own identity and vocation in the light of our destiny. If you're worried about what we're all going to get stamped out, the reign of Jesus outlasts all empires. Uh, including the one that we came out of, most, many of us, the uh, British Empire. The Bible's not particularly happy about empires. Um, there's Peter, Romans 12. You'll have a kind of a, yeah, honour the, um, honour the emperor, honour the authorities, but it's not a kind of a, um, we're just fine with everything that happens. Instead, think about the Book of Revelation, the beast and so forth, uh, the Roman Empire as a model for other empires as well, um, always is on the take, always looking to have more, always looking to expand and at the expense of others. And we should remember um, as well, particularly if we have a, a European backgrounds, that a lot of their benefits do come at the expense of others and the expansion of our particular ancestry uh, empire. Anyway, just a thought. So, let's move on. Okay, so, no more of that. One more thing. If we're called to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, to be just, to um, include our mind within our discipleship, to recover this Christian mind, that's distinctive and faithful. We need to be serious about the fact of what we're often called, Jews and Christians, people of the book. That actually reading is an important part. <laughs> Anything of that, Louis? <laughs> reading is an important part of actually being uh, a disciple in a literate culture. We actually have a riches of um, available to us in terms of this, and so. I just say to all of you, let me put it harshly so you can just react. It'll stick in your mind. And faith is not a hobby. It's a discipline. It's the centre of our lives. It's our core convictions. It's the practice which actually um, is at the centre of everything else that we do if we take it seriously. That doesn't mean just coming to church, unless coming to church is actually something which actually facilitates our discipleship uh, well. One of the things, it's not just about Bible reading too, by the way, this is where we're going, is that one of the things that's interesting about looking at Paul, for instance, is that he introduced something which some people now call Christian theology, which is that in struggling with, not just looking back on the story of Israel and living a life within a circumscribed plot of land but actually out in all of the world in all sorts of different cultures um, 
with approaches that are completely different uh, to what you would find in Israel, is there is a need to take the story of Scripture and the convictions that arise out of it, particularly the story of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit, and to say, what does this look like in this particular Gentile culture? How do we think about it? How do we actually live in this context? How do we take what we had before and not just replicate it? Um, you didn't find, like, say, in Philippi, a group of Christians um, trying to carve out a little sort of a um, uh, little promised land space that was just for them. You know, withdrawn from everybody else and we're going to have our own sort of little small nation, our own kind of little Hutt River province, if any of you remember that. Anyone remember the Hutt River province? Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, having our own little deal happening over here. Instead, living in the midst of the nations as a sign of witness, I needed to think and reflect and ask, how do all these different things that are happening in our culture, how do we face them, answer them, um, either see the good in them or the things that need to be rebuked and rejected, etc. How do we do that? And that's a task which we call Christian theology. We need to clarify sometimes the questions that arise Paul begins to do that in his letters. Um, some people would say, well, the Trinity is not in the Bible. But part of the task of Christian theology is to actually reflect on that and to understand, wow, this, what we end up calling the Trinity is actually the best way to explain, the, you would say, the grammar of the New Testament, the way that God is presented in that, that oh, his God is the Father and his Christ, who also takes on divine names, and here is God's presence in a personal way, okay, so how does this all fit together? Christian theology is a necessity at that level, but it's also at the level of you engaging with your world every day. Not just as individuals, we do it together as a community. So, to end, here we are living in the light of what is to come. Great and glorious salvation, God will bring things to a conclusion. We don't know when. It's been going quite a while. But we have a mission in the meantime. And how we think about that is, again, always looking at the backdrop of that story. When we read scripture together, think about the backdrop of that story. What is God actually doing at each part? And what's he pushing towards his final aim? Think about what it means to actually live in relation to God, to other people and to the land or to uh, the earth as well. These things aren't things that drop away. They are refined and they are refocused in terms of the coming of Christ and in terms of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Our hope is that God will come to live amongst us. We look forward to that. Um, our life now is to wait for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our hope is not what happens to us when we die we're not we're not going to head back to eden we're not going up to heaven we are going forward to god's new creation and whether we live when the lord returns or we die we will be transformed and changed resurrected if dead to participate at the end in that glorious new creation in the meantime let us live with discipline 